Our text for today will be chapter 20, verses 1 through 26. As you're making your way there, I thought I'd give you just a brief update about the building. I know that some of you are likely thinking, we did a campaign called Putting Down Roots, and it looks more like we're growing up weeds, right? Well, wrong. It does take time. It takes uh, time working through the processes with the county agencies and all the rest, and we've been doing that over these past few weeks. A little delay here and there, some red tape to cut here and there, but we're close. And I'm told that, God willing, that perhaps we could even see a grading permit issued as early as this week, if not next. And so just continue to keep that in prayer. We're hopeful to see activities start very soon. I just wanted to give you a brief update that we've not forgotten about that building over there that we're thinking about building. It is coming at some point, God willing, and uh, we're looking forward to that. And so thank you for your patience. Continue to pray, and we look forward to how the Lord will see us started very soon. All right, our time this, get, this morning uh, together in God's Word is going to be based out of Luke chapter 20, the first 26 verses. We're continuing our journey through the Gospel of Luke this morning. And we now turn our time and attention to this chapter. Here we go, chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priest and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question, now tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable, a man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty handed. And he sent yet a third, this one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son, perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir, let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said as to deliver him up, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but te truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you inspired by your Holy Spirit to Luke to record for us these events and these things regarding the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, so that we can see them, so we can hear them, so that we can understand your redemptive work and the hope that is ours in him. Lord, would you teach us this morning from your word, we pray in Jesus' name, 
Amen. When you think about the word authority, that word can garner all sorts of emotional responses, certainly depending on the context. In general though, authority, authority is something that most people want, but very few desire to be under. We are often suspicious of authority, aren't we? Especially if we've seen it abused. I mean, we've known and seen parents who may mistreat their children. We've experienced a boss perhaps that has overstepped his or her authority, making it very difficult to work underneath them. We've seen governments misuse power, even in a democracy. We've certainly even seen it in the church, how authority can grow to unhealthy extremes. So our default, our default response is often to at least question authority if we don't outright reject it. But regardless, we live in a world that is filled with all kinds of authority. And that's not a bad thing. Whether in the home, the workplace, society, or even the church, authority properly understood and properly exercised is a good thing. And for good reason, because we know that all authority is given from God. It is based in his nature and character. He is the ultimate authority. And so when Jesus came and when he walked this earth and when he ministered, he did so, God in the flesh, as God in the flesh, he did so as one with authority. He demonstrated, he revealed authority as he conducted himself. And we know that reading through the Gospel of Luke, that some responded to his authority favorably, but others, many others, not so much. Indeed, the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, those who were given the charge of shepherding the people of God, these religious leaders who had massive influence over the population, they had largely rejected the authority of Jesus and his claims. No matter how hard they tried, they could not keep his authority from being demonstrated and revealed, proclaimed. That's where we find ourselves this morning in this text. This passage is reminding us that Jesus, as the Son of God, as the one who is divine, he is God in the flesh. Jesus Christ is the authoritative Son of God. He is the promised Messiah who came, as the Old Testament projected, to accomplish redemption for the people of God. And so when we back up from this text for just a moment and we, when we consider what, what's being taught here, what we see from these verses is that Jesus is the one with all authority and the one to whom we must entrust our lives and follow. That's the main idea that we're seeing from chapter 20 is that Jesus Christ is the one with all authority. He's God in the flesh, demonstrating all authority and the one to whom we must embrace and entrust our lives and follow all our days. This passage is a call. It's a call for us to embrace and trust Christ's authority by showing us, by showing us the foolishness of rejecting Christ's authority. And it does so in three ways. It does so, it shows us, it, it demonstrates the foolishness of rejecting Christ's authority, which is by implication a call to us to embrace his authority. It does so through a revealing question a pointed lesson we see in the parable and a failed trap. We're gonna walk through that passage this morning in those, way, in, in those points. Let's begin in the first eight verses with looking at a, revealed, a revealing question. 
We know that since Jesus, as we looked at back in, in chapter 19, he has uh, driven out the money changers. He's regained control temporarily of the temple and he's been teaching in the temple daily. We know that from chapter 19, verse 47. And now in chapter 20, verse one, one day, one of those days that he's teaching, he's doing so, and it wasn't long until some of the Jewish leaders from the Sanhedrin, which included, a, it was kind of a group of people, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders kind of formed this, this leadership group. They confronted him about his teaching. You see that in verse two. They came to him and said, tell us by what authority do you do these things and who it was that gave you this authority? And you need to understand that they're asking that question because they are the ones that had that authority. It's as if they're saying, none of us gave you the right to teach in this temple. So tell us who gave you this, this permission. They wanna know how Jesus was able to teach in the temple. And so Jesus responds as rabbis would often do with one another in, in a series of questions when they were presented with a question, he does so with a question back to them. And it's a question that brings up John the Baptist. In verse three, you see that he answered them, I will ask you a question. And he asked them a question about John the Baptist. That's, that's a pretty straightforward question. It's multiple choice. They don't even have to come up with the answer. He gives them two answers. Which one is it? One's right and one's wrong. Now, it's not even four, A, B, C, D, it's two, A, B. A, heaven, did, did John's baptism come from heaven or did it come from B, man? And Jesus is even kind and gracious and lets them do group work. <laughs> they discussed it with one another in verse five. And they realize very quickly that, that they're, they're in a conundrum. They're, they're, <laughs> they're facing a problem here. Either way they answer the question, they know they've got trouble. If it's A, heaven, if, if they say, well, John's baptism came from heaven, it's, it was endorsed by God, it was under the authority of God, if they answer that, then, then they're in trouble because they've rejected John's baptism. They don't see it as valid. They don't see it as from God. So they know they can't say it's from heaven because they've rejected it. And so if they've rejected John's baptism, they've rejected God and his authority. You see the, the problem there. But they can't claim it was for man either. They can't choose B, which is what they really believed because they understood that the people who considered John a prophet would have been enraged. In fact, you see it there in verse six. If we say for man, all the people will stone us to death. So they come back to Jesus and say, see, we don't know. To which Jesus says, neither will I answer you by what authority I do this. You know, the issue here is simply that these leaders that these leaders do not acknowledge. They have not acknowledged and they continue to persist in their rebellion. They do not acknowledge or respect the authority of Jesus. They do not embrace him as the Messiah and they reject him completely. And you understand that these chief priests, the scribes, the elders, these who were responsible for leading and shepherding the people of God, responsible for the worship that goes on in the temple, they had rejected the very word of God that they would have claimed to defend and teach and instruct. That's the issue that's at hand here. The, the problem is they don't see it. Think about that, the many times that they had seen Jesus do a miracle, they're, they're hearing him now in the temple teach. And we know that in other places throughout the gospel accounts that when Jesus taught, that, that many would say he teaches as one with authority. There's something different about his teaching. They've had many times to observe Jesus, to hear Jesus, and no matter what else he said, even there in the temple, they were not going to believe him. 
What they do is they reveal the condition of their hearts. And with Jesus, this one question, it's, it seems a little random, doesn't it? They're like, hey, what, by what authority are you doing this? We're the authority and none of us have agreed for you to be here to do what you're doing. So you tell us, Jesus, how are you doing this? And then he's like, well, I'll tell you this, you answer this question, and we know from, I think, Matthew's gospel of this same account that Jesus says, you answer my question, I'll answer yours. And he's like, you tell me, what, from John the Baptist, let's, let's go to John the Baptist. Was his baptism from heaven or is it from man? Seems odd, but this, this question demonstrates that the religious authorities were no authority at all, they, that they... They did not see John the Baptist who was prophesied in the Old Testament as the forerunner of the Messiah. So if they didn't embrace John, they, they certainly weren't embracing Jesus. They, they were, there was a disconnect between the Old Testament promises and the fulfillment that was unfolding before their very eyes and thus they incriminate themselves and are shown to be fools. Friends, when you think about the the outright rejection of Christ's authority here. I think there's a warning here for us as well. When we read through the Gospel of Luke, and if you've been here with us through this journey over the last, I don't know, year or two, or you're reading through the Gospel accounts yourself, and you're confronted with Jesus as he's revealed to you through these chapters and verses. When we are confronted with Jesus, his claims, his teaching, his ministry, what do our hearts say about him? Do we willingly place ourselves under his authority and listen to him with humility? Or do we resist and reject and question his authority? There are many ways that we are tempted to question Jesus' authority. We, we question his authority when we refuse to even open and, and read his word, to listen to his word. You've heard me say this before, I've, I've heard this so often that, that, that it just continues to be, it's said in different ways, but it's this, this statement that's often said, well, I know what the Bible says, but, You've, at that point, you just completely undermined the authority of Scripture. You completely stepped away from the authority of Christ when you say, I know the Bible says this, however, I'm going to reinterpret it or I'm going to now submit the Bible to my authority and help bring some clarity on what it should be saying or actually the way we should take it. We question the authority of Jesus when we live however we want to live without any regard to, a, to honoring him through our humble obedience. So this question is a revealing question because it exposes the true condition of the religious leaders' hearts. It shows that they are not, they're not with Christ. And you get to the end of this passage and, and they've not proved their point. They're not going to, we know that. They've not brought Jesus down. They're the ones that are shown to be fools. But then we see another observation about the authority of Christ in this passage, and we see it through this parable. Number two, a pointed lesson. A pointed lesson. In the parable of the wicked tenants, Jesus shows us what happens to those who ultimately refuse his authority. It's a significant parable because it's one of the few times in the scriptures when Jesus actually gives us commentary on the history of Israel. And it's a pretty pointed summary of that history. In the parable, we know that there's an owner with a vineyard the owner goes away to a far country and he leaves care of the vineyard to tenants, like tenant farmers. And at some point along the way, the, the owner of this vineyard sends servants to 
the vineyard to reap some of the fruit, but the tenants beat them and send them packing. He does that two, three times. And then he says, well, okay, well, well, maybe I will send my son and they will respect him. He's family. Maybe if I send my son, they will respect him and listen and reap some of the fruit. We know there in the text that the owner sends the son and they conspire together and kill the son. Typically, parables have one point. There's several things that we could draw away from this particular parable, but, and I think you have to be careful with parables not to make every little thing mean something, but in this parable, it's a little different because I think the points are crystal clear, aren't they? We know that the vineyard is a symbolic here in this parable of of Israel, or at least the, the blessings of the covenant promises, the inheritance that the people of God would have had. The owner of the vineyard is God, and God puts the religious leaders, the tenants, Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, in charge of caring for Israel. And over time, God sends the prophets, who are the servants in this parable, to Israel to speak to them and and to bring fruit, we could say, spiritually speaking. But these prophets are rejected and they're beaten. We know that that happens. You can go to Jeremiah. I just was finished reading Jeremiah in my, my devotion time, and that's exactly what happened to Jeremiah. Or Zechariah, these prophets were not received well and they were persecuted. And then God sends his son, Jesus, to which they conspire. And we know by the time we get later down the road in this gospel that they kill him. He basically summarizes the history of Israel in this brief parable. And as he does so, he, he, shows, he shows how the people of Israel, led astray by the religious leaders, have rejected him by rejecting him as Messiah, therefore they've rejected his authority. And God is not going to let that stand. I say number two is a pointed lesson, but there's actually several lessons within the lesson of the parable. I want us to see a few of these. First of all, we see in this parable, there's, there's a clear lesson about sin. This parable shows us just how far sin can take us. The chief priest describes the, the tenants in this parable. They had rejected God's word and the Messiah. That, that's clear, isn't it? God had given them a stewardship. He had called them to tend to the vineyard. And when the owner sends the servants and then the son, they persecute and kill them. They act as if it's their vineyard, not the owner's. They saw themselves. Think about this. These are the chief priests, the elders, the scribes. These are the very ones who would have claimed, if you were to ask them, interview them, pause the scene and then interview these people, they they would have seen themselves as those who were the most attentive to God's word, those who understood the Old Testament scriptures, those who had authority, if you could say that, to teach and to defend the truth. These were the teachers and the leaders of God's people. And yet when God sends his son, they reject him and they will kill him. They turned their backs on the Lord and they didn't even see it. Friends, Jesus here shows us the severity of sin, just how far it will take us. It's far worse than we ever think it is. It blinds us, it deceives us. Listen, the chief priest describes the elders, the Sanhedrin, these religious leaders, they were not rejecting Jesus due to a lack of evidence. They had all the evidence you could ask for. They had the Old Testament scriptures and right before their very eyes, Jesus was fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures. So they didn't reject him or excuse me, they didn't accept him due to some lack of evidence. They had plenty of evidence. They rejected him because of their hard, because of their hard hearts. Friends, I think this, this, when you read this parable and you just see how far these tenants go, 
If these religious leaders of the day who are the authority of God's word can go this far and kill the very son of God, should that not be a warning to us? Should that not be a warning to us? It should cause us to at least pause and reflect upon the condition of our own hearts. How could these leaders and the vast majority of the people of Israel miss it with Jesus? In many ways, does this sound familiar? In many ways, the people of Israel, the religious leaders were just living in a religious culture, breathing religious air, talking religious talk, believing none of it to be true. Even though they claimed to be defenders of the truth, they had rejected the authority of God's word as they rejected the authority of God's Messiah. And they were going to kill him. I mean, they, they go from rejecting authority to murder. <laughs> this is what sin does. I mean, it's far worse than we think. That's what sin is, isn't it? It's a rejection of God's authority. Anytime you sin, that's what you're doing. You're saying, God says this, I want that, therefore God, I'm not following you. All sin is a rejection of authority. It's a rejection of God's authority. And you see that on display magnified here to how far it will go. J.C. Ryle said this about this passage. He said, he said, if we could pull God down from his throne, we would. That's, that's how far the human heart can go in sin's deception. And even as Christians, we, we struggle with that even on a daily basis, don't we? With regard to sin, saying, that's what we're saying, that, that God, that his way is not best or his way is not good. We've got this. Look where it had led these religious leaders and they didn't even see it. They thought they were doing the people of God a favor. Friends, do we, do we understand the, the depths of our own hearts and just how far sin has affected us? And not only that, do we see our need for forgiveness? We can go on and on about that, but I want us to, we'll come back to that in a moment, but not only is this a lesson about sin, it's a lesson about justice, God's justice. Look at verse, I want you to jump down to verse 17. So the parable's finished. And when they, the people around heard this, they said, two words, surely not. Surely not. In response to the fact that Jesus in this parable is, has the, the owner of the vineyard has judged the tenants, has brought judgment upon them and given the vineyard to others. Now think about that. Why did they not agree with the justice that was given to the evil tenants? I mean, we read the parable and we're like, yep, they, they, they had it coming for them. That seems right. I mean, they, they, they were wicked. Not only did they beat people, they killed the owner's son. Of course they should have been judged. But that's not how the people respond to that parable. They hear it and they said, surely not. Surely the owner wouldn't do that. I mean, that's harsh. Yeah, they probably acted bad, but I mean, come on. What they're doing, the crowd, is that they're presuming upon the promises and kindness of God. The tenants in the parable had presumed upon the owner's kindness, but they had faced the swift hand of the owner's justice. And the crowd didn't think that was fair. They too showed themselves to presume upon the kindness of God, even though these tenants had rejected his authority. 
And, and before you get a little holier than thou in, in response to the tenets, friends, this happens quite easily to us in our own hearts today. The more and more influenced we are by various worldviews or the culture's worldview of a particular point or multiple points, the more comfortable we grow with those things, the more dangerous our lives become. More and more professing Christians today are saying, God, I hear you, but I just can't go there anymore. It's a different day. I've heard people say that. It was a long time ago in my home church, I heard a guy say, well, I know that we just, we just decided in our small group, we, we can't do that anymore. <laughs> it was a clear command. I was like, okay, we got big problems here. We, we need to address that. But that's what happens. When we presume upon the kindness of God and we, when we forsake the promises of God and then when we continue to, to trust in our own way or, or to, to believe other authorities, that's what happens. We begin to question the justice of God. Does God have a right to make a claim and then defend that claim and hold us accountable to it? Yes or no? That's, that's what we're having to answer. And I think the more comfortable we grow with, with culture, and I think we ought to be right in the middle of culture. I'm not, I'm not Amish. I don't think we should pull all of our families and, and get out of culture and just kind of have a holy huddle over here. I think we ought to be in it, influencing and, and speaking the gospel clearly, being faithful in our proclamation of the truth of God's word in the midst of, in the midst of culture. But be careful. You rub shoulders too long with it, you'll start to look like it and sound like it and begin to question God and who he is. See, at the end of the day, when we start questioning the character of God, that's what they're doing. They're, they're questioning the character of God. That's a dangerous place. It's a deadly place to be. When we be, what, what happens, and this happens all the time, it can happen in your heart. It happens every time we sin, but it happens regularly. You see it in the culture, you can see it in your own heart. When we begin to, to sin and to, to, to say that, that, okay, I hear you, God, but this, what we are doing is we are now becoming the authority and no longer is God and his word that authority. It's a dangerous place to be. This text shows us the depths of our sin and a need for a savior. It shows us the struggle and fight that is going on in our hearts on a daily basis in this world. Every human heart wrestling with these things. Will we trust the word and authority of God or will we put our trust and our faith in something else? And that something else may be you, it may be somebody else, it may be some other worldview, it may, whatever. That, that's the question that you've got to answer, not just once. Jesus, I'm in, I answered it. No, it's daily. God, am I gonna trust you, your word? Are you the authority or am I going to trust something else? The tenants received justice from the hand of the owner. And the crowd didn't like it, but notice what happens in verse 17. Jesus, <laughs> he looked directly at them. You ever had your mom or dad say, you look at me in the eyes, right? It's one of those moments. Jesus looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? Do you know, look where Jesus is going. Look where Jesus is basing his authority. Where? The scriptures. He looks at them and then he refers to the authority of God's word in verse 17 and he quotes scripture. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's a quotation. Then he goes on in verse 18 and says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. 
He's quoting from Psalm 118, verse 22. In that psalm, the builders are likely pagan nations that attacked the king of Israel. But here Jesus is quoting that same song, psalm and he's applying it not to the pagan nations, but to the religious leaders of Israel. The religious elite. And the point he's making is, is simple. God does not take lightly the rejection of his son. He's not going to let that slide. Jesus is the exalted stone. Jesus is the cornerstone, the foundation of his people sent as the redeemer to rescue us from sin, to draw us out of captivity. And the Pharisees and a large part of Israel under their leadership say, I don't think so. They reject the justice of God. Rejecting the Messiah, friends, has devastating consequences. And it confronts us all with the question, and it's that question of whether or not we've embraced this exalted stone, this foundation, this cornerstone, or do we remain in danger of being crushed by him? One of two things will be reality for you, for me, for everyone in the world. Jesus will either be that foundation for your life, your hope, your joy, your treasure, your savior, your redeemer, or he will crush you. Like there's no, there's no, there's no other option. So I would encourage you, friend, if, if, you're an, if you're an unbeliever and you're with us this morning or you're watching our live stream, if you're having questions about Jesus, we're thrilled you're here and you're in a good place to be able to ask those questions. We want you to ask those questions. You should bring your questions, your doubts, your fears, your concerns, and have open discussion with them, with us. So if you're, you're questioning these things, just consider your take on Jesus. You may not even think you've rejected him, but does your life say differently? You may respect Jesus, but you're not submitting to him as your authority. It's clear that there's some other authority governing your life because your life doesn't reflect the, the things that Jesus calls us to. So consider your take. Take your questions to the gospels and let the gospel become the, the lens through which you're, you're, you're asking those questions and you're seeing the answers. Because this is where we see Jesus revealed clearly, faithfully, truthfully. It's a lesson about justice. It's a lesson about the dangers of rejecting the Messiah and questioning the, the character of God because God will hold us accountable because he's just. But number three, it's also a lesson about mercy. Don't miss this. Throughout the parable, we see just how patient and gracious and kind God is, don't we? I mean, had, you think about this, had you been the owner of the vineyard and you sent someone to reap some fruit and they beat them up? What would you have done? Like there would have been some immediate accountability, I would imagine. But what does the owner do? He sends another servant. They beat him up. What, what does he do? He sends another servant. What do they do? They beat him up. Let me send my son. And they kill him. Jesus is showing us through this parable that God is a God of mercy. Think about this. God, in the parable, God the owner, knowing how the servants had been treated, not one, not two, but three of them, willingly sends his son to the vineyard. He knows what's happened. It's not just one kind of off day for these tenants. No, there were three servants that were mistreated and, and beaten, and now he willingly sends his son. It's an expression of the greatest kindness. And no, not only that, Jesus is telling this parable knowing he's the son that's going to go to the vineyard and be slaughtered 
on a cross. He's telling this parable, anticipating his own death. It's an expression of mercy. John read that passage for us earlier from Ephesians, where it's talking about in the first three verses that we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, we're bad. We've sinned against God. But verse four says, but God being rich in what? Mercy. Were it not for the mercy of God, where would we be, brothers and sisters? God is a God of justice and righteousness, and he will hold sinners accountable. But praise God that he is a God of mercy and compassion and patience and grace and love, and that he willingly extends that to the undeserving. And so friend, if you're here today and you're hearing this and you're feeling the guilt of your own sin, the weight of your own sin, and you're feeling the the righteous judgment of God against your sin, that that would be right because of your rebellion against God, understand that God is a God of mercy and compassion, that he does not delight in punishing the wicked, though he will, but he is a redeemer. He is a reconciler of sinners. He loves sinners so much that he willingly sent his son to the vineyard to die for your sin. And if you would put your hope in him, your sin would be forgiven and you would be given everlasting life. Don't miss that. It's a lesson about mercy. Right in the midst of all of the the justice and judgment that we see take place at the end of the parable, there is mercy on display. It's a lesson to consider. Number three, we see a failed trap. And there at the end of this, or not the end of the chapter, but at the end of our text this morning, you see in verses 20 through 26 that it's a failed trap that the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on Jesus, but they couldn't because the people, they feared the people. They were always more concerned about the fear of man than they were the fear of God. That was another issue that they had. They feared the people, so they they didn't do what they wanted to do to Jesus at this moment. So they continue on with their agenda to do him harm, to do him in. So this time, what do they do? Verse 20, they watched him and they sent spies. So they get some people. They're like, all right, Go act like you like Jesus and try to set him up and bring him down. That's what they do. These spies go and notice verse 20. So they watched him and sent spies, these spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. That was their, that was their plan. We're gonna pretend to be sincere. We're gonna pretend to like Jesus so that we can set him up, get him to say something wrong and get him in trouble with the authorities and he's over, he's done. But before before they begin to ask him a question, they, they butter him up a bit, don't they? Verse 21, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality and truly teach the way of God, right? It's like a kid coming to the, his or her parents for they're about to say something that the parents probably don't want to hear. They're, they say something nice, right? Hey, mom, you know how nice you look today? Dad, you, whatever. I don't know. Jesus, we know you truly teach the way of God. We do have a question though. Verse 22, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Rome was in charge. Caesar was considered among the Roman pagans as a god. So here's the question. Do we give tribute to this one that everybody else thinks is a god? Or shouldn't, or, or, or don't, don't we? It's, a, it's a, an attempt to trap Jesus. So again, the motive is to, to see him done these spies sent by the Pharisees was to discredit him with the people because they hated Rome and Rome's oppressive tax system. 
So they set him up on that way. And if that didn't work, maybe his answer about Rome would put him in a bad light with Rome and therefore Rome would take care of it. Jesus knows their motives. Verse 23, we see that he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius, a coin. It was a day's wage uh, laborer and, and often his coin. And so they bring him one. And he asks them, whose likeness and inscription does it have? Whose image is on this coin? They said, Caesar's. And he said, answer, we've, if you've been around church much, or if you read your Bible much, you've, you've probably heard this before. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God's the things that are God's. Now, the trap was a failure because Jesus threaded the needle beautifully with his answer. And the only thing these spies could do at this point was to grow silent. That's what happens. Verse 26, they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. We often come to this passage and talk about how slick Jesus was with his answer. And then we go on to endless debate and discussion and maybe proclamation about how Christians should relate to government. And while those are principle, while, while there's a principle here about Christians and gov government, this text is not intended to be a full orb theology about Christians and government. He simply says, government has its place, respect that, obey the government, even if it's Caesar. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. It's got his image on it, give it back to him. You benefit from the roads, you benefit from the, the, the system, even though it may be corrupt, you, you benefit from it. Do what the government says. But the problem is, is when we come to this text, we often neglect that last part. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and then an hour long sermon about how we should relate to the government. Okay, there's maybe a time for that, especially if you draw in Romans 13 and other passages. But there's that second part, and to God, the things that are God's. Don't miss that. Remember the context here. They're trying to trap Jesus and discredit his authority. None of that's worked. In fact, their schemes have only proven his authority even more so. But here, Jesus' response, he calls them to submit to divine authority. Jesus' demand here is a cost that is far more than we like to admit. When we think of Caesar, we think in terms of percentages, don't we? How much of this do I give him? And Jesus says, give him what he's asking. But what does it mean to render to God the things that are God's? Where is God's image planted? On each and every one of us. Give to Caesar his things, but to give to God his things, those things that belong to him, and that is every part of you. Be careful that you don't reduce the impact of Jesus' response here by coming to this verse and simply say, yes, the Bible says we should pay our taxes. End of story. You should pay your taxes, by the way. Yes, you should obey the governing authority so long as they don't call you to deny the gospel, but give everything to God. Everything, all that you are, give that to God. It's as if Jesus is saying to these spies, you wanna talk about responsibility to Caesar? Okay, give him what he requires of you, but the greater responsibility that you're called to is give God everything he requires of you, and that is all of you. Jesus came, he lived, he taught, he did miracles. He's on his way to a Roman cross. And he came to give himself for people just like you, friends. He came to die as a substitute and a sacrifice to absorb the wrath of God against your sin, to cleanse you. But listen, not only that, but to call you to follow him and to trust him, to submit to his authority. You know, our experience with worldly authority may be a, it may be a mixed bag, some good, some bad. 
When Jesus came and walked this earth, he came as one with authority. This authority exemplified through Jesus is an authority that will divide humanity. Those who see and embrace him for who he is as he's been revealed and those who remain in their sin and reject him. Friend, if you are not following Jesus, do not miss the point of this parable. Jesus is essential for your life. If you are to be reconciled to God, it must come through Jesus. He's foundational, he's the cornerstone to everlasting life. He's the one the Old Testament promised the old, that he, and that the New Testament delivered. Came and gave himself for people just as he had promised so your sin could be forgiven and your life transformed that you might live under his perfect authority. And trust in that. Don't be crushed by the stone. Build your life upon it. And fellow Christians, let this passage remind us that Jesus is in fact that cornerstone. He's the one who promised, the one who came, the one to fulfill the redemptive purposes of God and, and accomplish the salvation that God intends for sinners. The one who was killed, but the one whose death was not in vain because he was raised three days later from the dead. And as a result of all this, we should joyfully embrace him and gladly live under his authority because he is the one with perfect authority and the one with all authority. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word and what it teaches us. We're grateful for helping us understand who Jesus is, the foolishness of rejecting who he is and the error, the deadly error that that would be. Father, this morning I would pray that for those who are with us today, maybe they're struggling with the claims of Christ. Maybe they're struggling with giving their life over to Christ. Father, it's my prayer that you would work in their hearts this morning, that you would use your word by your Holy Spirit to give them eyes to see the truth and to believe it, to embrace it not just by word, but through deed. Or that they would not listen to the other authorities of this world, but God, that they would submit to your authority and give their lives to Christ. Lord, for those of us who follow you, for those of us who are in Christ, it's my prayer that this text would remind us that, that we are no different than any other sinner and that there are times in our lives where we would be distracted away from hearing you and trusting you and what you claim and what you have accomplished and who you are. Father, would you root us firmly in the truth of all that you are, that the authority of your word would be our foundation and that Christ would be our hope and that we would follow him all our days. Thank you, Father, for this word that you've given us today. Thank you for these truths, for these reminders. We pray that you would work them in our hearts as you choose for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.